I think we're good. Um, good morning, everybody. We're still working our way through Second Corinthians. And as we've said, Second Corinthians is the most autobiographical of Paul's letters. We learn a lot in the letter about how he thinks and feels. He's a lot more vulnerable in this letter. And as he brings this letter to a close, we'll see both this week and next week, he reveals his father's heart. That's oh, what he says in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, verse 11. He says, I have been a fool. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I'm nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And, and what we've observed is that the Christians in Corinth had been swept off their feet by false apostles masquerading as apostles of Christ. We get the impression that the Corinthians assumed that apostles should speak well and look good and have an air of authority about them and these false apostles. They certainly were good at those things. And the Corinthians then, as they looked at the false apostles and they looked at Paul, they turned away from him in shame. It's He was too afflicted and he seemed too weak, and he was too tongue-tied. He just didn't seem to evidence the kind of things that someone in a position of spiritual authority would e exhibit in their culture. And the fact is that when you look at it, the things that are evidence of an apostle are were really being and characterized by Paul's ministry endurance and patience. He had the ability to continue to offer himself out for others as Jesus did. There were signs and wonders and miracles, and we'll talk about them in just a second, that that those things were performed and they were evidences. And with, there is evidence as well, being an apostle of Christ, a father's heart. Uh, with respect to signs and wonders, Paul chooses his words pretty carefully. He doesn't say, I performed signs and wonders and miracles. What he says is that signs and wonders and miracles were performed. He makes clear that he doesn't see these signs as really emanating from himself biblically. The purpose of signs, wonders, and miracles in the first century was that they validated both the messenger and the message, that, that miracles then existed for the purpose of faith. Faith didn't exist for the purpose of miracles. We have a tendency in some camps to believe that if you have enough faith, you can kind of use your faith as a currency to get to do miracles. And you'd almost get the sense sometimes that people believe that faith exists for miracles. But in Paul's understanding, that's backwards. Faith doesn't exist for miracles. Miracles exist for faith. The evidence of miracles served to validate Paul 
and his message. And that's the way he saw miracles, almost like God testifying to him, saying, this is someone who represents me that you need to listen to. And, and, and that's what Paul, that's what his desire was. He goes on. He says, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Tongue in cheek. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. He says, I will not be a burden. This created some problems. Paul refused to accept financial support from them. And that caused the Corinthians concerns because it communicated something to their culture that he didn't accept remuneration. That says something about him. He must not be worth it. Uh, the rivals, these false apostles, they had no qualms about accepting whatever they could get from the Corinthians. And they said, we're worth it. And, and Paul would not accept the gifts of individuals while he was ministering to them. He would rely on funds that were given him when he moved from the last location, and he 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 tent made, he made tents in order to support himself. So what he would do, and this is one of the reasons he's in Corinth, when he was going from a place that he had ministered to, I think he was in Corinth for about, I think a year and a half, when he moved from there to another place, he accepted offerings from the church to allow him to go to the next place, but he didn't accept those offerings while he was in that locale. Uh, and he talks about why he doesn't want their money. He doesn't want their things. He wants them. He wants their heart. Uh, he goes off. He goes on to, to say in verse 14, for children are not obligated to save up for parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? He won't accept their money because in his mind, he's the parent and they're the children. And you think of the way it works in families. Parents amass things. When they come to the end, they bequeath these things to their children. And it's not that the children save up for parents, but the parents save up for children. And Paul is saying that's kind of the way he sees it. He sees them not as individuals that he can extract money from. What he sees them as is his children. And he is their father. And the way it works, whatever capital parents amass, they end up passing on to their kids, not vice versa. And this where we see something, it's a true apostle of Christ, has a parental heart. He says he's willing to spend and to be spent on behalf of the congregation, being involved as a jar of clay, as a transmitter of the gospel, both Paul himself and the Galilean Jewish Christians that he tried to 
and courage to follow in his steps. There was a um, there was a price that they had to pay. What was interesting, as Paul was willing to pay this price to spend and be spent, this seems like the more he loves them and sacrifices for them, he tries to avoid painful visits. The more he makes these loving concessions, the less they seem to love him in return. And that's where you see Paul's heart. He has laid down his life for them. And these individuals are able to come and and kind of to drag his name through the mud. And they are not standing up for him. And Paul, what he ends up doing is revealing his heart. He's hurt. He goes on in verse 16. But granting that I myself did not burden you, I was crafty, you say, and got the better of you by deceit? Did I take advantage of you through any of those whom I sent to you? I urged Titus to go and sent the brother with him. Did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not act in the same spirit? Did we not take the same steps? Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. Well, Paul can testify to, he goes, look at the people I sent. Did anybody try to take advantage of you? Did anybody exploit you? These charges are being leveled against him, but he's saying, think about it. Think about when I was with you. Think about the individuals I sent. Did any of us try to take advantage of you? And if they thought about it, they'd have to say no. But it's interesting. But under the influence of these usurpers, they are looking at Paul crossways. And, and it's almost, he says, you think we've been defending ourselves to you. They, the Corinthians had been put in a place by these usurpers where they're kind of putting Paul on trial. It's like they are putting Paul on a witness stand in a courtroom and determining, okay, let's decide. And Paul's not speaking from a courtroom. He's speaking from a family room. They're not these individuals that are just making allegations. They are his children, and his heart is broken by what's happening, not just because of the impact on his feelings, but as they look at him crossways, they are not going to listen to what he says And that is going to be devastating spiritually for them. It is very important that they regard him so that they will regard the message he proclaims. If they disregard him, they'll disregard his message. And that's what he's afraid of. Um, Somebody's claiming, by the way, that this collection he's taking, ah, that's all a ruse. You know, he's going to, oh, he says he's going to, Take, he didn't charge you, right? And he's going to take your money and bring it to Jerusalem. I'm sure all of his money will get to Jerusalem. Yeah, maybe a little bit in Paul's pocket on the side. Paul says, wait a minute. Did I ever act that way? But it's funny how somebody's suggesting something, a rumor, a gossip can take root. And there's actually, they're starting to evaluate him. And he says, wait a minute. Look who you're talking to. 
But he's afraid that this wedge that has been placed will be, again, spiritually devastating for them. Listen to what he says in verse 20. I fear that perhaps when I come, I may not find you as I wish, and that you might not find me as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Paul's afraid that when he gets there, because they have dismissed him and his message, he's going to find them in morally bankrupt and a lot of depravity when he visits. And like a parent, he feels guilt and shame for the sins that his children commit. He feels it personally. It hurts him. Paul doesn't lash out against their sins with righteous indignation, but with mourning, sadness. It's breaking his heart. They remain his beloved children in the faith. What Paul understands is that depraved deeds come from depraved thoughts. Well, Paul understands, and it's not always easy to understand, that the way it works, when we know the truth about God, when we think true things about God, thinking true things about God affects our desires, not just our spiritual desires, all of our desires. Right thinking leads to an ability for our desires not to be as loud and as intrusive. Sometimes desires can get so loud that they're almost impossible to ignore. To the degree, long term, we come to understand God's promises. It causes the volume of our desires to be turned down a little bit. They become a little bit less intrusive. As our desires become a little less intrusive, a little less loud, our deeds then change. But the deeds come from the desires, and the desires are rooted in the thoughts about God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4, 17 through 20. He says, speaking to Gentiles, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality, godlessness, so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It describes a process that it begins with the futility of thinking being darkened in understanding 
separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. What he's describing is spiritual knowledge. The thing that happens first, their thinking about God becomes dark. That's what's happening. The more they tune Paul out, the more they tune these false apostles in, the darker their thoughts become. They start to think about God as someone punitive, someone harsh. As that happens, that's the root of the issue. Then desires start to become loud. And as desires become loud, acting out becomes a problem. But the acting out becomes a matter of desires. And the desires can be rooted back to dark thoughts. So here's the question then. If you're Paul or think of ourselves, we deal with dark deeds. What do we do? Well, dark deeds come from loud desires. So what do you do with loud desires? We, we'd like to try to direct them, but that's not what we do. Loud desires come from dark thoughts. So what Paul would say, if you want to make a change in your life, think clearly about God. Understand his new covenant promises. Don't let anybody who looks good and says it right and is powerful and persuasive and successful lead you to believe that God blesses the successful. He doesn't. God blesses the needy. And he is, his love is, according to the new covenant, free. That seems like it's a something that shouldn't be. However, we don't need to pay God back. And as we understand the good news, then the good news leads to Desires that are less intrusive and deeds. I remember I was talking with a guy who um, was on staff at a church once. He said, you know what? I don't need really to know anything more about the Bible. I just need to do what I already know to do. And here's what he was saying. The Bible basically tells me what to do. And so I really don't need to be in the Bible anymore until I'm willing to do what it is it tells me to do. And you know what the problem with that? It's wrong. What this guy needed, he needed to be in the Bible, not just because it tells him what to do, but because it tells him who God is. And it tells him what God thinks about him. Because as this guy's thoughts would become changed, it would change his desire, not change his desires, but cause him to be less intrusive, and it would change his deeds. Uh, it seems to be biblically, and I'll close with this, it really does seem that misbehaving comes from misbelieving that depravity comes from darkness. You know what that means? If we want to get to the root of the problem, stay in a place where you hear the truth about God and keep listening to it, keep listening to it, keep listening to it, keep listening to it. Over time, your thoughts change. And your thoughts impact your desires and impact your deeds. That's what Paul's saying. And that's why he's concerned about them. That's why he wants them to continue to tune him in. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for clarity. And Paul was crystal clear. It's not that he didn't see that there was depravity. He understood that you can't attack depravity straight on because those types of deeds 
come from loud desires and loud desires come from dark thoughts from individuals having notions about you that are not in line with Jesus Christ on the new covenant that's how you re, that's how you express yourself towards us Jesus reveals your new covenant concerns to us and as we live in the light of that new covenant that light changes us I pray that we would continue to live in the light of your new covenant glory so that we might be transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen.